Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. An asset class that has grown at about 20%. When people start talking about recession in the mainstream media, the real problem we have with the Fed is that they are equal parts voodoo and wishful thinking. I geek out on this conversation. These are not normal market conditions that we're typically used to. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by SSNC Technologies. We're very happy to have them on as a platinum member. I'm joined today by Mike Ashton, the Inflation Guy. Always a very entertaining podcast. Mike, welcome. Oh, thank you. That was three welcomes. Is that one for you, one for me, one for SSNC? That's right. That's the three. <laughs> Man, I love having you on. You're a repeat guest, and your your jam is inflation. I don't know if you heard our intro, but one of your very entertaining quotes is part of our new intro. We're thrilled to have it. <laughs> I can always count on you. So where's the Fed right now? What's going on with inflation and the Fed? And where have they got it right, if anywhere, and where have they got it wrong? <laughs> if anywhere. I like that. Well, you know, I think that you know, I have to give credit where credit is due. You know, I thought that the Fed would, in keeping with sort of their their historical approach, that they would back when they first started the tightening cycle, I thought they would tighten a couple times and then something would break in the markets and they'd stop. And I guess partly because nothing really is broken in the markets, you know, they've kind of kept on going much further than I, I ever thought that they would. I, you know, I think that they're in the process of, you know, tapering off to, they want to end with Fed funds something around 5%. And I don't know if that's end-end. I suspect it is because it's kind of rare for the Fed to stop and then to continue. But but given how fast they've moved rates up, it's entirely prudent at this point to sort of stop and and take a look around and and see if they're getting the reaction that they that they expected to. I mean, monetary policy does work with a lag. And so if you're tightening as quickly as they are, then you know you risk way overdoing it if you don't stop every now and then take a look around. You know, you've got inflation coming down and but it'll take a while for them to figure out is that just, you know, natural ebb and flow stuff or or have we really broken the back of the thing? And now it takes some time. And so it is prudent to get to where you wanted to go and then stop and take a look around. And the previous podcast, you had said, you know, basically it's the wrong tool, right? And yeah. money supply has yes. expanded by 40% and you can expect prices to go up by 40% direct relationship. And if the Fed is successful and they will be successful at slowing the economy and grinding jobs down, but if they get it right, it's purely by accident. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's about <laughs> where it's about I mean, I, I love listening to our podcast because, you know, the Fed is using interest rates as a, a in monetary policy, but it is such a lagged tool that they often overshoot, right? And, you know, I think it's important to note that they are addressing this inflation in a way that, that they never have, you know, they've never used monetary policy in this way to address this problem. And that is, you know, using only interest rates rather than directly addressing the money supply. I actually just wrote a blog post on this and it's on the inflationguy.blog and it's called The Monetary Policy Revolution in Three Charts because I've been talking about this for a long time. 
in trying to explain why the way the Fed used to effect monetary policy is they would restrict reserves and that would cause interest rates to go up as one of the results and how that differs from what they're doing now, which is raising interest rates and totally ignoring, you know, the quantity of reserves. In fact, over-providing the quantity of reserves. Now, the interesting thing up to this point has been money supply growth has crashed way back down. I mean, it's it's been flat for the last six months or whatever. And so, you know, and I think in this in this blog post, I sort of show these different charts and I sort of, I think, I think you walk away hopefully understanding how that could happen, but also how Fed either has to have a really, really good handle on exactly what the demand curve looks like for money, or they've got to get really lucky. And I suspect what we've sort of seen with the slowing of the money supply is kind of a temporary uh, shock adjustment that will eventually, um, given excess, copious excess reserves, I don't think we'll, we'll keep money supply growth down zero. Okay, so just so everybody understand, gets this, it's yeah. it's in the inflation guy dot blog. No, it's just in inflation guy dot blog. Inflation guy dot blog, yeah. and it's called monetary policy in three charts. What are yeah. the three charts? So the three charts are well. So I mean, they're really sort of the same chart with different lines drawn them, right? So the the basic chart is kind of your free market interest rate chart. So you have the quantity of bank lending versus the price of the loan. So if, you know you have your P axis, your vertical axis, and your Q axis. And the Q is the quantity of bank loans. And P is the price of the loan that is interest rates. And so you know the demand curve slopes downward. The higher the price of the loan, so it's actually, I guess, sort of inverse, but the higher the price of the loan, the the lower the interest rate, so the lower the price of the loan, then the higher the quantity of loans that people want. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if interest yeah. rates were zero, there'd be right. a lot of demand to borrow money. And if interest rates were 20%, there'd be a lot less, right? Absolutely. And the supply curve, and this is the part that's sort of the important part. So we know that demand curve is downward sloping, but we don't know exactly what it looks like. You know it's downward sloping, but you don't know what how elastic it is. The supply curve, you know, at higher interest rates, all those being equal, you know, banks want to lend more, right? So, and it's really probably spread, not the absolute level, but but whatever. But, you know, as interest rates go up, obviously, whoever's lending you money wants to lend you more money at higher interest rates. But the important thing to remember with banks is, at least traditionally, the supply curve eventually goes vertical. That there's a, there historically has been a point which bank couldn't lend more because they didn't have enough available reserves. And the bank had not, the Fed had not provided enough reserves for banks to lend more. And so the way that the Fed affected lending was to make more reserves available so banks could then lend more. And so that shifts the, the supply curve. And sort of that's sort of chart two is, okay, you know, here's how we traditionally would tighten is we would pull back on reserves, which moves that vertical part of the supply curve left. You get higher interest rates, you get a lower quantity of bank loans. So that's the way it traditionally has worked. And then chart three is, okay, let's suppose though that we're not going to do anything with reserves. We're just going to put, you know, a a floor on interest rates. Okay, we're just going to move interest rates. And let's suppose that the floor is binding, which of course it's not with the with the uh, overnight interest rate. But 
then that sort of creates a different dynamic. Let's just put it that way. And you can sort of see that third chart on the, on the, the blog. But, but it means that if you guess the shape of the demand curve exactly right, then you know exactly where to raise interest rates to to get the quantity of res- the quantity of loans and therefore the amount of money you want. But you better know that curve exactly right. If you're if you're at all wrong, then you can get totally disparate outcomes. And so the optimistic way of looking at what the Fed is doing right now is that you know they're raising interest rates to the neighborhood of what they think is the right answer. And then they're going to look and see if they're getting the right outcome, you know, if they measured that demand curve right, if they guessed correctly. And that's sort of the optimistic way is that they understand that they're doing something that's totally different. And they want to see if they've calibrated it properly. That's that's the optimistic way of looking at what they're doing. So we just got through with the drama of, oh, we've hit the debt ceiling, right? And it's like uh, these these you know when you get politicians, it's just it just <laughs> makes me shake my head. But you go okay. Now when rates are as low as they were for as long as they were, there's a lot of folks who say that created inflated asset values, right? Mm-hmm. And. While the Fed has this stated target of, I think it's 2%, who knows, but one of the ways that you deal with this massive outstanding amount of debt is you can inflate it away, right? So can we talk a little bit about, do you think the Fed is really going to land and be comfortable with a higher level of inflation? I mean, when the cost of uh, the interest on this debt is is increased i mean how there's bigger implications here than just you know loan demand right i mean how yeah. does that all fit together well so i don't you know I, I you hear that a lot the idea that the fed and other policymakers want a higher level of inflation to inflate their way out of the debt but if you try to sit down and you build yourself a model of what you'd have to do to inflation to inflate your way out of the debt it just doesn't work you know, it works under the following circumstance. You have a lot of, you know, long-term debt termed out and you're not adding lots and lots to that debt. That's pretty important because everything you're adding, obviously you're adding at the higher interest rate and you don't have anything that's sort of directly related to that higher level of inflation. Well, we don't tick any of those boxes. Most of the, the debt, is relatively short term, like in the next five years kind of thing. So that if you raise inflation over the next two years, you know, five years from now, you've rolled all that debt at the higher interest rate. So that doesn't really help you that much. Two, we are also continuing to add lots and lots of new debt at these higher interest rates. And three, there's a, an enormous part of the liabilities of the federal government that is inflation linked. You know, Medicare is is implicitly inflation linked because it's linked to the price of medical care, and uh, and Social Security is explicitly inflation linked. And so there's really not if the Fed wants to inflate their way out of you know our debt problem, it ain't just ain't going to work. And I think they know that. There's no real way if you spend if you spend a half hour trying to 
take those pieces and try to model them and 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 okay so now another year has passed here's the price level here's the value of the debt now we roll it over and blah 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 it, it, you just can't make it go away you can't make it even decrease all that much unless you have an enormous spike in the very short term so get inflation to 50% or 100% you know or or 20% for one or two years and then drop it back down and then you can get away with it but that is a very radical. Yeah. Right. A, it's almost impossible. It's to almost do. impossible. B, to, yeah. B, it doesn't help you with the Medicare and and uh, and Social Security part, which are trillions and trillions and trillions. But at least your your marketable debt in that case would go down and and be less of a of a burden. But it's that's really hard to do. And then you refinance. You know, if you've got you know, then you refinance and you get twenty percent debt, and and you know you can make that problem you know, reduce that problem too. But it's awfully hard to do. And actually, I think part of the problem that we're running, we're going to run into now is I, I think that the Fed has su- sort of successfully renormalized interest rates to where they probably should be in the in the long run, maybe a little bit, your tenure rate should be a little higher between four and five in the long run. You know, you're talking 2% growth, you know, two, two and a half percent growth and two, two and a half percent inflation. You'd expect, in you know, inflation to be between, or nominal rates to be between four and five in the long run. But the problem is, as you start to roll over all, all of the debt and add new debt, you are going to have, you automatically increase the deficit because of the interest rate costs going up quite a bit. And with inflation like we've had it, you also are increasing, you know, you're getting a you know 9% increase in the social security deficit. So, you know, I think that the, the problem that could visit on us and on the Fed by later this year, if we're unlucky, is that it gets harder and harder to place an ever ever increasing amount of debt, which makes interest rates go a little higher. Because remember the last time we had these massive deficits, we had the Fed buying. And now the Fed is not buying and and even kind of letting some of the debt roll off. So you you would expect a higher equilibrium interest rate. And if that's the case, then that means more interest, which means more deficit, which means more. So at some point, that might be the thing that breaks, not stocks, but maybe bond the bond market breaks. And then the Fed is going to have to step in and and uh, try to control that sell-off. I mean, you know, the Bank of Japan is, has been dealing with that a little bit. And, um, you know, Bank of England went through a little bit of the same sort of thing. So, uh, you know, there's... If the U.S. has to do it, then it's obviously a much bigger issue because we have so much more debt. But So just as a refresher, right, nominal interest rates, that's the interest rate that is quoted in the market. There's the real interest rate, which is theoretically the nominal interest rate minus inflation. That's the real rate, right? Those are the three components of essentially, right? Well, it, yeah, it's, it's, you have to be careful because people don't talk about real interest rates the right way. So if you look at the 10-year treasury rate and say it's 4% and, and you look at, you know, current inflation at six, then you say, well, we have a negative 2% real interest rate. Well, that's not right. The real interest rate for 10 years is tied to the 10-year inflation expectations. So you just have to make sure that you you match your maturities there. And so, you know, right now we have an environment with 
long-term real interest rates of, you know, 1.5-ish, 1.5 to 1.75, and you have long-term expectations around 2%, 2.25, which is insane, but that's kind of where you get the around the 4% interest rate. And that's... High threes. Okay, so is that long-term inflation rate expectation observable? I mean, is there an index yes. that you look at? So it's, yes, it's observable well, in sort of two ways, but one way is to look at the inflation swaps market. So where one party pays a fixed rate and the other party pays actual inflation over the next decade or whatever the tenor is. And so that's a very direct way to view what the market is pricing that risk at. And the other way is to is to look at the difference between tips, which is a real interest rate plus what actually happens to inflation over that time period, and comparing that interest rate to the nominal fixed interest rate. So you know, that we call that the break-even. You know, what inflation do we need to be indifferent between those two things? And those two measures of inflation give slightly different answers for quantitative reasons, but but they both, you know, say roughly now that over the next 10 years, the market expects, that's in quotes, market doesn't really expect anything, but risk is being exchanged at something like a two and a quarter percent CPI average over the next 10 years, which just strikes me as outrageously optimistic and probably the best we're likely to get. And so therefore the risk is kind of one way from there. When you say optimistic, you mean, if I'm interpreting this correctly, that the inflation expectation is lower Right. Or on the yeah. low end of what you would expect given everything that's going on today. Exactly. The, you know, the the given what we've just gone through. So before we had the inflation spike up to you know eight, right? You could be excused for thinking that a long-term inflation expectation should be around two, because that's what the Fed was targeting and they'd been successful for 20 years. So all right, that's not a bad guess. Now, if you are an insurance-minded person, then then you should recognize that, you know, the tail risk to that is all to the upside. And so you should be willing to pay that expectation, knowing that if you get a long tail upside outcome, then it's all in your benefit. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. If you were smart enough to be buying break-evens around 2% prior to this whole debacle, you've done quite well, even though expectations have now gone back. But now that we've actually seen that outcome, beggar's belief that that that's still where you want to exchange risk because now you've actually seen the tail risk case you've seen the hurricane you never knew anything about hurricanes and so you insured a bunch of florida you know uh, real estate and then a hurricane hit and you said oh criminy i need to price that insurance differently but the market is not pricing it differently they're still selling hurricane insurance at the same price they were prior to the last hurricane. That's crazy. That's an interesting analogy. I just came up with that on the fly. I just, you know, <laughs> That's the kind of brilliance you bring to this thing. <laughs> That's the kind of brilliance that you bring to this podcast. You, you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bull. That's what my dad always said. Absolutely. So do you forecast interest rates yourself? Like, do you have an expectation of where you think the 10-year note is, call it six months from now? Is that 
I mean, is that something that you dabble in or is that something that you just say, uh-uh, I'm not touching that? <laughs> well, I mean, look, before I was a trader and an inflation guy, I was a, a fixed income strategist. I mean, that's kind of what I did. And so I can't really- You're not really, an you know, inflation guy. You're the inflation the guy. The inflation guy. The no, that's, inflation that's guy. We're going to talk, you're, you're branding people. We got to talk to your branding people. <laughs> Even before I was the inflation guy, though, I was an inflation guy. So you have to start with the generic, the I an. Got it. And All then right. you go to the definite article after that. So, but, but even before that, I was a fixed income guy. And so I did, I, you know, I, I, I sort of had to do that. And so I've just, I, I don't like to do this. But anyway, I'll mention my blog a second time, inflationguy.blog. I have, I haven't done this for a number of years, but I did put up a, 2022 year-end thoughts about 2023. I hate doing year-end outlook pieces. Yeah. I mean, there's just, but I think I, I think I guard it properly by saying, look, I, you know, this is, this is just sort of how I'm thinking about how all these, these things work and fit together. It's really sort of the right questions. Um, but so that's, that's kind of the way I, I, anyway, so I do have sort of a forecast in there and, you know, that's, and I sort of talk about some of the things we've already been talking about. But I do kind of project that, you know, at the end of the year for 10 years, I put in there, you know, 1.85% on tips yield. So that's real yield. And 2.65% on break even. So you add those two together and you get four and a half. There you go. So four and a half percent 10 year rate at the end of the year. So let's change gears just a little bit. So Headline recently, there's been a lot of talk around tech layoffs, right? It's like, oh my God, you know, Google laid off and, you know, Microsoft laid off and whatever. And at the same time, my wife is a huge fan of the CBS Sunday morning show. And so we're watching that thing yesterday and they do a piece on chat GPT, this, <laughs> this AI writing app that I think Microsoft paid a fortune for, right? And AI, everybody's talking about AI. So what's your view of the labor market right now? And this is sort of a, I don't know, kind of a wacky question, but how do you think AI is going to impact the knowledge worker, the lawyer, the, the accountant, the people who, who are in rules-based professions that, you know, I mean, there was a Stanford professor who said, AI won't replace lawyers, but it will, there will be lawyers who use AI and lawyers who don't use AI and the lawyers who use AI will ultimately win. That was the gentleman on yesterday morning. So lots of stuff thrown up against the wall, but um, it's our last question. So what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I mean, I think that, you know, AI, you know, any new whiz bang technology gets you know, it, its capabilities get sort of initially exaggerated and eventually we come back to earth. And, and clearly, you know, it all de depends on your, on your time frame. Eventually AI will be able to do, you know, everything humans can do probably. It's important. This is, this is sort of a sick and sad uh, uh, observation, but, you know, will AI ever replace lawyers? Will they ever replace accountants? And the answer is they won't. And it isn't because AI can't do the math. It's because that one of the reasons that we need an accountant, one of the reasons that we, I mean, I can do my own taxes. It's not that hard to do. But one of the reasons is that we need someone to, to point fingers at. I can't sue AI. And if my 
lawyer, my doctor, my accountant gives me malpractice, you know, I can sue them. And so, you know, that's a locus for a lawsuit is, is the actual human being who's doing it, who supposedly has judgment. So unless law, some, you know, someday law will change and recognize that you can sue whoever offered you the chatbot, the AI, we're going to still need those people. And that's, that's horrible, but it's, it's, you know, that even if they use a computer, I mean, you know, we use computers to do stuff that we used to use big ledgers and, you know, to write all the information down in. So I just think it means labor changes. I don't think that the, the need to work will go away. It didn't go away with the invention of the cotton gin. It didn't go away with the, you know, invention of the plow. It didn't go away with you know, the invention of the computer, the internet. You know, it just changes. And it'll disadvantage some people and it will advantage some other people. And at the end of the day, 40 years from now, we probably have more leisure because that's where we've been trending for the last 200 2,000 years, but I don't think the need for labor is going to go away. And um, I guess that's what I think about that. That's interesting. I think that's interesting. So what about the labor market more generally? What are you thinking here? I mean, when you see the layoffs and whatnot, do you view that as an early sign or a, a late stage yeah. sign? How do, you, how do you see it? I mean, I look, I, I think I've said this on, on your program last year that with what happened to energy prices last year with, with what happened to interest rates, it would be, it's inconceivable that we will get out of this valid recession. It would be the first time ever that we've had any kind of, you know, that those things happen and not have a recession. My view at this point, and it scares me a little bit because I think it's it's a consensus view and I hate having the consensus view, is that, you know, we're going to have a recession and it's going to be a, you know, what say a soft recession or a garden variety recession, something we haven't had in forever and ever and ever. But that's sort of what it feels like to me. I think that there's enough demographic contraction that it's going to be hard unless you have a real disaster happen. Um, it's going to be it's going to be difficult to get the unemployment rate super high, especially as we're nearshoring everything, right? So it's going to be much harder to to export jobs and and we're going to be importing jobs. So I think that I think that we're in a better place in terms of keeping everybody employed than we have been in the past. But 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 the bad news on that from the investor standpoint is that you know as a as a worker you represent the labor's share and you want labor to have a greater share of GDP because you're labor. As an investor, you want capital to have a better share of GDP, and those two add up. And so, you know, labor has been getting less of a share over the last 20 years, and that's why corporate earnings are, you know, earning share is, is, is so high. But one of the things that inflation does is it gives more power to organized labor. It gives more power to individual labors. And the, the shortage of labor generally gives more power to, to labor. So I think that that you're going to see, you know, layoffs. You're going to see the unemployment rate go up, but it's not going to go up to, you know, nine. It's going to go up to six, you know. And uh, But you're going to see margins come down as as workers have to compete for you know, what is now starting to become a, um, a workforce where labor, you know, skilled labor is, is somewhat scarce. Or maybe they'll just hire a chat GPT and call it a day. There you go. All right. <laughs> so I got a, I got a new icebreaker question for 2023. Oh, no. You ready? You warned me about this. I know. 
Okay. <laughs> this is what makes it great, right? Okay. Who would you like to have lunch with? Anyone alive or dead? Who would you like to have lunch with? You mean other than you? Oh, hello. Well, that's very <laughs> kind. <laughs> Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. Um, um, anyone alive or dead? Well, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you know, being a Christian, the first answer that jumps to my mind is is Jesus. But I think that I think he he probably he probably wouldn't enjoy the same kind of food that I do. So that might be a seems like he'd be a kind of like a salad guy. <laughs> How did we know. get to that? Don't, don't you think? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. know. I'm, I'm imagining, I <laughs> but I um. You know, actually, I, I I think it would be really interesting. And I'll I'll make this a one of two. You choose. I think that you know the giants of the of the time period when I was growing up in the early '80s, the political giants were were Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher. And and I think either of them, you know, I don't want to go back to Winston Churchill, but I think that 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 uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and or Ronald Reagan would be just super interesting and entertaining to have lunch with for different reasons. I think Margaret Thatcher was much more of a, you know, a hard nosed leader. And, and especially as a, as a woman for that time, you know, I, I really, really admire her. Whereas Ronald Reagan was obviously you know, super entertaining and and intellectually a lot higher up the scale than people gave him credit for. So he was an economist, actually, before he ever became an actor. So I think either of those people would be super interesting. Outstanding. Mike, thanks for being on. Well, thank you for having me again. I'm sure I'll probably see you again on this. Podcast. I certainly hope so. We're, we, we'll get you slated for next quarter. It's fantastic. I'd like to thank our sponsor, SSNC Technologies. The views expressed on this podcast are our own, Mike's and mine. Thanks for listening. If you would, please follow us and rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd sure appreciate it. And if you have ideas for podcasts, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. Thanks for listening. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the InsuranceAUM.com podcast.